This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Donald J. Trump just can't stop making history for all the wrong reasons. I did everything right and they indicted me. Tuesday marked the first time a former American president has ever faced federal charges as Trump appeared in front of another courtroom, this time in Miami, Florida. Trump was booked and arraigned on 37 criminal counts, including the willful retention of national defense information. Trump pleaded not guilty to every charge, but it is at least possible that this story will end with the former president behind bars. That, of course, hasn't stopped him or some of his fellow Republicans denouncing the indictment. It's a political persecution like something straight out of a fascist or a communist nation. The need to be re-elected president has become all the more vital to Donald Trump. But how exactly will these latest charges affect the presidential race of 2024? And if the Make America Great Again or MAGA movement was not fired up enough already, will more Trump talk of a witch hunt galvanise the base and even bring a repeat of the violence the world witnessed on January 6th, 2021? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. I don't think that I could have anticipated how things would play out in quite this fashion. Anne Kushkardori is a lawyer and former federal prosecutor in the U.S. Justice Department. He's also a contributing writer for Politico magazine and a contributing editor for New York magazine. There are a lot of new facts that have been alleged in the indictment that make the situation appear to be significantly worse than uh, the American public knew. And there was really an open question, uh, in my mind at least, about whether or not the Biden situation, you know, his handling of classified documents, um, which became a huge story in the U.S. for a while, might actually sort of make it harder for prosecutors to develop a case and uh, and bring a case that could be clearly delineated uh, from the Biden situation uh, or the facts as we know them concerning Joe Biden. They appear to have done that quite well. And, you know, now we're, you know, we've embarked in this country on a literally unprecedented path, the first ever federal prosecution of a former U.S. president. Once inside, the former president, along with aide Walt Nauta, who was also charged in the case, surrendered to authorities, got swabbed for DNA, and were fingerprinted. There was no mugshot taken, and Trump was allowed to hold on to his passport. So let's begin with the appearance in court this Tuesday, just a few days ago. Describe, if you would, the scene of how that played out outside the courtroom, the hoopla, and and what was what played out inside. So there was a, a, a somewhat remarkable juxtaposition, I think, between the scene outside and the scene inside. On the outside, there were a, a large number of Trump supporters. There were some counter protesters as well. But the the court is located in a sort of a much more favorable 
area for Trump, generally speaking, given the voter base. And so there were a lot of people out in force supporting him inside. You know, there were no cameras. Uh, There's no audio that was uh, released. It was a really a sort of a lot of formalities. Trump had to sign a bond release form. There was some discussion about potentially limiting his ability to speak to other people involved in the case. But it was a very straightforward event, uh, according to the, to the reports by the journalists who were actually in the room. So let's go through the charges. And if you can, as the lawyer in this conversation, give us a, a synopsis briefly of the charges, particularly the most serious ones. And we should say, even before we dive into them, that he is obviously, Donald Trump pleaded, not guilty to all of them. But w- what are the charges and what are the ones that are really serious business? So there are 37 counts in the indictment, but I think uh, in the indictment against Trump, there's an, ex- there's an extra count that concerns his alleged co-conspirator. But we can break those counts up into two different buckets. 31 of those counts concern uh, documents and the charges that Trump willfully retained documents with national defense information in them. According to the indictment, the highly sensitive materials, which included information about the U.S. nuclear program and the military activities of adversaries, were found throughout Mar-a-Lago, in a bathroom, in the lake room, in the white and gold ballroom, and in a storage area. So that's one half of it. And so there's a set of allegations in the indictment that is all about you know Trump's possession of the materials, his handling of the materials, his evident desire to keep the materials and to sort of show them off to people from time to time and um, you know leave them strewn about his property. The second set of charges, which comprises the, the remainder of those against Trump, are all related to his alleged obstruction of the investigators' efforts to recover the documents. In the indictment, prosecutors allege Trump knowingly misled his attorneys and the FBI in an effort to hold on to the documents despite that subpoena. Notes from one of Trump's attorneys obtained by prosecutors reveal Trump allegedly said, what happens if we just don't respond at all or don't play ball with them? And he went through, according to the indictment, which is just a set of allegations at the moment, he went through a very elaborate lengths to um, try to hold on to material and to use people in his sort of employ, including his own uh, lawyer, Evan Corcoran, to mislead federal investigators. So I think, you know, for people trying to sort of understand this at a very high level, you can think about the case as having those two halves. One is about uh, willfully retaining the material in the first place, and the other half is about obstructing uh, the Justice Department's efforts to get that material back. Am I right in thinking it's that second bucket, the notion of obstructing Uh, justice or obstructing those people who wanted the documents back that distinguishes this case from the one you and I were talking about on this podcast five months ago when it was Joe Biden who'd been found to have held on to some documents from his time in office. Also around the same time, uh, Mike Pence found to have held on to some documents. Is it that that is why, that second bucket, is why that Donald Trump found himself in court this week, that notion that he was willfully refusing requests to hand the papers over. Is that the big difference? Yes. Yes, that is the big difference, right? In the cases involving Biden and Pence, you know, they, when they or their agents found the material, they immediately provided them to the government. At least that's what the situation appears to be. Of course, Biden is still under investigation uh, by the Justice Department. But that is a major point of differentiation, the effort by Trump, as alleged in the indictment, to mislead investigators is much more elaborate 
than we knew. And of course, there's much more potent evidence of this than we were aware of, most significantly in the form of his own lawyer's notes, uh, uh, contemporaneous notes during that period. So yeah, I think both legally and politically, that set of facts sets his case significantly apart from others. Yeah. And what were the sort of jaw droppers in terms of some of that evidence that you had not anticipated that had not been trailed in uh, leaked accounts or reported accounts in the papers? Yeah, well, two in particular. One, one is there's this, you know, back and forth that's outlined in the indictment between Trump and his co-defendant, Walt Nada, who sort of sort of serves him as a sort of a valet, it seems. And there's a lot of text messages in the indictment about Trump and Trump's directions for moving the boxes, moving them here and there, potentially loading them on a plane. And there just was much more involvement on the part of Trump in like where these materials were kept during this process than we previously knew, including what appeared to have been efforts to move material around to avoid federal investigators being able to get their hands on it. And then the second sort of set of facts that's new in this area is all of the material concerning Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran. What we actually learned from the allegations of the indictment, assuming that they're true, is that you know Corcoran took pretty contemporaneous notes of his dealings with Trump, including multiple efforts on the part of Trump to use Corcoran to suggest that everything had been turned over when it had not. And there's a very like strange concerning sort of allegation in, in the indictment in which you know Trump is at one point talking to an attorney and sort of suggesting that maybe if he finds anything particularly bad in the documents, the small number of documents that he is about to turn over to the government, that he maybe pull it out of the material before returning it. And that to me was completely new and quite bad. And does it mean then that if Donald Trump had, yes, taken the documents originally away from the White House and kept them in Mar-a-Lago, but when asked to hand them over, had simply said, yep, take the, here they are, have them back, he would not be in the legal trouble he is in now and perhaps would never have been brought before the court in Miami at all? I think that is almost certainly the case. I don't think Joe Biden and Merrick Garland wanted to be in this position of prosecuting Trump. Merrick Garland, of course, being the attorney general. Correct. Attorney General Merrick Garland and President Joe Biden, I don't think that they wanted to be in this position. You know, during his campaign, you know, Joe Biden indicated publicly that he would be uncomfortable if his Justice Department ended up prosecuting Trump because he thought it would sort of maybe look like, you know, we're in some sort of banana republic or whatever. And there were reports during the transition along those lines, too. As to Merrick Garland, you know, I think he was selected because he shared a sort of broad temperamental similarities and dispositional similarities with Joe Biden, including on this point. You know, I just think the notion which Republicans have been harping on in recent days that Biden and Garland have been out to get Trump, it's just totally fact-free. I mean, I think nothing could be further from the truth. They, they, they really did not want to be in this position and Trump's, you know, sort of forced them. What did you make of the move Donald Trump made straight after his court appearance? He got on a plane, flew to Bedminster, New Jersey, where he has another golf uh, resort. Nice birthday. Wonderful birthday. And there he told a whole crowd of his supporters that his indictments were corrupt, that this was a political pursuit by, his words, the most corrupt president of the United States ever. This day will go down in infamy and Joe Biden will forever be remembered as not only the most corrupt president in the history of our country, but perhaps even more importantly, the president who together with a band of his closest thugs, misfits and Marxists tried to destroy 
American democracy. Given the the legal position he's in, I mean, obviously it's a it's part politics and part legal. But what do you make of that? So, as a strictly legal matter, you know, criminal defendants are usually advised to keep their mouths shut publicly, right? You don't want to antagonize prosecutors, the courts. You don't want to say anything that might actually make your legal situation worse. However, all of this railing against the Justice Department, the notion that there's a double standard, that the Justice Department has been weaponized, that the FBI is corrupt, so on and so forth, these sort of themes that the Republican Party and Trump have been sort of developing for for a couple of years now have, or appear to have, significant resonance with a, a large portion of the GOP base. And so Trump's railing and his public comments, he seems to think, uh, will potentially help him get back into office. And if he gets back into office, that will actually wash this whole thing away, right? He'll be able to pardon himself or direct his attorney general to dismiss the case, close any active investigations. So he's walking this really fascinating tightrope, um, which I've written a little bit about, which is he's making these comments that appear to be unhelpful in the short term, but over the long sweep, you know, it's very possible he thinks this may help him get into office and be his most direct and simplest way to getting out of this mess. You have been writing on this all the way through, and you wrote at the start of the week a very arresting first line to your piece. You wrote, two two years from now, Donald Trump could be in prison or he could be president. Just walk us through how both of those or each of those two scenarios could unfold. Right. So Trump could end up in prison. How that might happen, this case proceeds to a trial. He is convicted. The judge sentences him to prison time. That conviction and the sentence are upheld on appeal, and nobody is in a position to pardon him. That scenario would probably require Joe Biden to gain re-election. That is a very conceivable scenario now, right? That this could end up with him in prison, and I'm sure he's very, very worried about that. And just just to jump in, and it could do that even in the timeline, because there's not that much time between now and Election Day 2024. There's enough time for that to happen, is it, with all the uh, appeals and you know different jurisdictions and so on? Yeah, two years would be a little uh, uh, aggressive. I think that's unlikely to, that, the, that the case would unfold kind of that quickly. And I'm, I'm actually a little bit dubious that we'll even see a trial before the election. But that outcome depends on a lot of variables that we cannot predict with any certainty right now. And, and a lot of them are up to the judge. And the other end of the spectrum, of course, is that Trump uh, gets the GOP nomination. He defeats Joe Biden in the general election. He becomes president. And no matter where the case is in the, at that point in time, even if he's been convicted at trial, he can pardon himself. He can direct his attorney general to dismiss the case. Um, there are going to be multiple mechanisms available to him if he gets back into office to effectively shut the whole thing down and wash everything away. That too, right, is a very conceivable scenario right now, um, given his somewhat dominant lead in the primary polls and the American public's somewhat uh, ambivalent reception to the notion of a Biden-Trump rematch. Yeah, and there is still a continual, uh, small, but poll lead for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. So if he does make it to the nomination, as things stand, it is certainly plausible that Donald Trump could win and therefore get himself back into office. You mentioned there a crucial person is the judge, Eileen Cannon, uh, appointed by Donald Trump. But what can you tell us about her? And given what we know and what you know, how you think she's going to play this, the decision she's going to make? 
So Eileen Cannon is not a new character in this saga. She is the judge who oversaw a lawsuit that Trump brought after the search of Mar-a-Lago last year, challenging the government's search. And she issued a very favorable ruling uh, to Trump that effectively appointed a special master to oversee the Justice Department's review of the information that they had recovered. It was Uh, seemed like it would throw a pretty significant wrench in the process. That decision was overruled in a very sharply worded opinion by the federal appeals court that oversees her district. And all of the indications from that process were that she would be very, very favorable to Donald Trump, and she may continue to be very favorable to Donald Trump. Now, how she got the case, it appears to be that it was randomly assigned to her, a low probability event, uh, but nevertheless one that uh, appears to have materialized And, you know, people are concerned, understandably, that she'll be both very, very inclined to rule in favor of Trump throughout the process and and grant him as many accommodations as she can. And also, quite honestly, that she may not have the depth of experience and knowledge to manage a case like this, which involves classified documents and a whole separate sort of bespoke set of procedures for discovery in a criminal case like that. So her involvement is quite worrisome, I think, to people who are, who are who want to see this case proceed through as orderly a process as possible. It slightly undermines his claim that it's all a big witch hunt by the deep state, that they've just handed him the judge who has been previously sympathetic to him. Just before we leave the legal and move to the political, on his own side, you've written about this, or his own legal team has been chaotic. Uh, I was reading this week that, you know, in the past, it was a great honour to be asked to represent a former president. It was seen as something, a feather in your cap as a lawyer. It seems as if there's not exactly a stampede in the legal community to represent this particular accused. Yeah, it's really quite remarkable uh, that we have a former president facing all of these significant legal threats and prosecutions, and he is actually struggling to get good legal representation. The fact of the matter is that Trump is very unpopular (laughs) among lawyers, generally speaking. I mean, lawyers tend to skew liberal in the U.S., but representing Donald Trump has historically been a somewhat perilous exercise. You can get yourself into legal trouble, ethical trouble as a lawyer representing him. And somewhat paradoxically here, too, you know, I, I don't think people should be rooting for him to have bad lawyers, you know, he's struggling and, and maybe people think, oh, if he's got bad lawyers, it'll be easier to put him in prison. That's really not, I think, an advisable position under the circumstances. It will be much better off, better for everyone involved, including the people who, who want to see him in prison. If he's got good represent, representation at the trial level so there aren't stupid appeal issues. And also, I think it's important that he have good lawyers because if this case proceeds to a trial, it's going to be really important that the public have confidence in the process. And I actually hope that he gets a competent team around him. And I think that is coming together, but it's still in process. Let's talk then about how this is uh, going to be handled by Donald Trump's fellow Republicans. I mean, we did have this almost bizarre sight of Republicans saying, look, there's a big difference um, between Joe Biden and Donald Trump because Joe Biden, when he had documents, he just kept them in a garage, which anyone can break into. But uh, Donald Trump kept these documents in a bathroom in Mar-a-Lago, and at least a bathroom has a lock. I don't know. Is it a good picture to have boxes in a garage that opens up all the time? A bathroom door locks. 
Uh, and then others coming back and saying, yeah, but bathrooms locked from the inside. I mean, sort of bizarre because of all prompted by those pictures of you know files and boxes of files in a Mar-a-Lago bathroom, shower room, and so on. Uh, but more generally, um, you know, it's a big party. There are Republican candidates for president. There are Republicans in the Senate. How overall do you see the Republican wider family, as it were, handling uh, this case and everything that arises from it? So the the folks who I think have kept their distance have been sort of the more established um, Republicans, particularly in the Senate, have largely kept quiet about uh, the indictment and any reactions to it. Then you have the folks who are in the House who are generally much more sympathetic uh, to Trump, as well as GOP primary contenders who have also um, sort of been tr- struggling to figure out how they're going to position themselves. Some of them, like Vivek Ramaswamy um, and Nikki Haley, have indicated that they would be open to pardoning Trump. Others, like Mike Pence, have really been struggling to so- sort of uh, figure out a line here that will sort of carry them through this process. Most recently, you know, Pence says he's sort of concerned about the allegations and the indictment. He thinks the the conduct that's alleged in the indictment is very concerning, but he does seem to be trying to hold out some room to sort of say like, well, maybe this is a double standard. You know, Trump is being sort of unfairly singled out and that he may too sort of end up in the future at some point thinking or pu- uh, publicly contemplating a pardon. And unfortunately, you know, I think that there are actually political forces here that are pulling everyone in that direction. And it, and it largely has to do with the fact that Trump supporters, particularly try, diehard Trump supporters, comprise a significant chunk of the current Republican electorate. So all of these people who are running against him in the primary, of course, need to try to peel some of those people off. But that gives you sort of the broad sweep. Everybody on the Republican side is either silent or finding some tortured reasons to sort of quasi-defend Trump to outright say that they would pardon him if they got into office. The only exception, of course, is Chris Christie, who we spoke about on this podcast just last week. The former governor of New Jersey is continuing his one-man crusade aiming directly at Donald Trump. He hasn't won a damn thing since 2016. Three-time loser. But no, absolutely. Uh, The rest of the Republican field does not seem anywhere near as confident to take the battle to Donald Trump. Uh, Another player in the drama, of course, Democrats, uh, Joe Biden, the White House. We we read that Joe Biden has ordered his re-election campaign and Democratic Party to, in effect, take a vow of silence on this one, uh, presumably because they want to say this is the separate operation of the Department of Justice, nothing to do with them. It's not a political prosecution. But how how difficult is it for, to, for Joe Biden to maintain that kind of detachment from this? So I, I think it's going to be very, very hard to maintain that position, particularly if Trump is the general election nominee. The public is largely going to be exposed to people who are sympathetic to Donald Trump. When that has happened in the past, including during like the Mueller investigation, the first impeachment stemming from Donald Trump's call to the Ukrainian president, public opinion has shifted in his favor um, when he and his allies have sort of controlled the megaphone around these issues. It has taken, it takes a while, but it does move. And I wouldn't be surprised if that starts to happen here if Democrats continue to stand down. The reality is that this is the incumbent president's most significant political rival. He cannot go out and say Donald Trump is guilty, right? That would be wildly improper. Nor can he go out and say, you know, I I hope that voters convict him or anything like that. But 
it would be, I think, a very, very valuable service for Biden, who is still one of the most trusted politicians, even though a lot of people dislike his policies. I think it would be great if at some point, you know, whether that's, you know, in the in the coming months or, or if he's head to head with Donald Trump, for him to come out and say, like, look, we have a, a process here, a judicial process here. It's a real significant and important thing that we have a legal system that holds everyone to account at the same level. And we have to let that process unfold. I, I really worry, quite honestly, that this campaign of vilifying the uh, prosecutors and the Justice Department could actually have some legs simply because it's worked in the past. Some people have worried that the this indictment and the fact there have been, you know, this is not the only one, there's been one already different kind of case, um, but other cases pending, that this raises a risk of antagonising that base to such an extent that people are mentioning again the storming of Capitol Hill in January 2021 and the fear that this could lead to political violence from Trump supporters who believe, as he keeps telling them, that he is the victim of a kind of vendetta or witch hunt from uh, those in authority, including uh, those in legal authority. What do you make of those fears? Are they overblown or do you share them? I share those concerns. Um, I think it's it would be foolish not to share those concerns, given what's happened in this country over the last few years, including January 6th. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic that that we won't see anything truly uh, unsettling. I mean, I think, I think the first hearing was actually, since it was relatively peaceful, even with all the protesters outside, that is a good sign. Um, but also, you know, the administration has made very clear that they're going to take this very seriously and the security issues very seriously. And it helps, of course, that it is being run by an administration that is at least tries to competently deploy federal law enforcement uh, uh, authorities as opposed to kind of the, the the Trump administration. So it's definitely concerning. I mean, it would be obviously most concerning at a point in time when there's potentially a trial, potentially a verdict, uh, and so on and so forth, which is, you know, down the line if we get to that point. But it's it's a real legitimate concern. Now, Ankush, you know, as a past guest on this podcast, that we always do like to ask a what else question, something completely different. And it has seemed this week as if the administration, Biden administration, is keen to extend a couple of olive branches to adversaries this week. And the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is going to China, trying to move past the a spy balloon affair, which we covered on the podcast earlier this year, and at the same time reports that the uh, administration is engaged in quiet talks um, with Iran in negotiating, you know, through intermediaries uh, uh, and so on with Iran to limit uh, Tehran's nuclear program, but also to free some Americans held captive in Iran. What do you make of the of these initiatives? So somewhat embarrassingly, um, perhaps, I had no idea either of those things was even happening until you guys told me about them. Uh, in, in the U.S. here, the coverage has just been almost entirely dominated by the Trump indictment. I've been sort of flat out trying to myself follow the news and write about it. So I'm somewhat heartened to hear that sort of the normal government operations, diplomacy and the like, still seems to exist and be happening. But uh, it's hard for me to have opinion because I literally did not know these things were happening until you told me. No, which I think speaks volumes about how dominant the uh, the indictment and the Trump legal story is, that it is just um, sucking up all the oxygen in the room. Ankush Kardori, thanks so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America. Thank you for having me. 
And that is all from me for this week. Do make sure to listen to Thursday's episode of our sister podcast, Politics Weekly UK, as John Harris, Pippa Crera and David Gork examine the demise of a person who plenty call the UK counterpart to Donald Trump, namely Boris Johnson. So search for that wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it is goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.